Good morning, everybody. He is risen. He is risen Praise God. And even though we are living under uh, weird, strange circumstances right now, Jesus is just as risen today as he ever was. So we can praise God for that. Thanks for tuning in. And by the way, if you're watching this morning and uh, this is the first time you've uh, watched the service here at First Baptist Church, I'm so thankful. I'm thrilled that you chose to join us and worship today as we go to the Lord and celebrate his resurrection. When nobody likes to be unprepared. I'll never forget this moment whenever I was in college. Uh, I came into a history class, I sat down, and I looked around the room and noticed that nobody had a notebook out. They all just had out their pencils. And it dawned on me that uh, this was abnormal, and as it turns out, we had a test that day. And I had no idea, and I would love to tell you that I, that I aced that test and did well anyway, but that was not true. I, I flunked it. I flunked it because I was completely unprepared. And nobody likes to be caught unprepared. And in this particular moment that we have in history, I believe we can all safely say that it caught us all unprepared. As a matter of fact, I came across an article that I was looking at Um, And it was entitled, How Could We Have Been So Utterly Unprepared? How could we, the country that flies to the rescue all over the globe, be unable even now to help ourselves? And they were going through all the equipment that we need. This this was written on April 2nd. The the article was talking about masks. Uh, the, The writer went on to say, you don't need them, we were told, except now maybe you do, or maybe not. And anyway, we don't have any. Then ventilators, sorry, not enough to go around for all the people who are going to need them to breathe. Then personal protection equipment for those who go to work every day, literally risking their lives on the front lines of this crisis. The national stockpile is going down, just about gone, and the supposed supply chain seems unable to restock the cupboard. Meanwhile, millions of masks are leaving the country, sold to the highest bidder, even as states are pleading for equipment. And then there's no tests. It seems that no one ever envisioned this coast-to-coast emergency that we find ourselves in right now, or at least nobody paid any attention to the people at the Department of Health and Human Services who did envision it. They conducted a a simulation last year, and it showed that we were fundamentally unprepared to deal with an influenza pandemic we thought we were looking at at the time, for which there's no cure. We were unprepared for the financial setbacks that we're experiencing. We were unprepared for the unemployment. And now we're stopping and we're asking ourselves, why and how could we have been more prepared for this? And then there's another event that's going to be coming down the road. Frankly, it's an event that comes for every single one of us. At some point, we are going to find out whether or not we are prepared for our own death and then what comes after it. In the book of Daniel, it says that everyone at some point is going to be resurrected, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. It's what the text says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And we as Christians believe what the text says in John chapter 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me 
will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So we believe in this moment as Christians. We believe that it's coming. And the question I want to explore this morning is how do we get prepared for it? How can I live in preparation for the resurrection? And the text I want to look at this morning is one that I'm sure you're probably familiar with. It comes from Luke chapter 24. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Luke 24, 1 through 7. Like past weeks, I'll also be looking at various Old Testament texts, but that's where we're going to start at this morning. Feel free to read these words off the screen with me. Also, feel free to stand there in your homes. Typically, we stand out of respect for the Word of God. Feel free to do that. I'm going to stand as I'm reading these verses this morning. Luke 24, verses 1 through 7. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. You may be seated. And as we are approaching this event, and as we have been approaching this Easter Sunday, we've been going back and we've been looking at this as it has been foretold by the prophets hundreds of years before the event ever happened. As a matter of fact, a few days after what we just read in Luke chapter 24, after that resurrection event, it says that Jesus was walking down a road. People were still trying to put the pieces together of what had just happened. This man came. He says he was God. He did miracles. He said uh, th that he could be our Savior. But then he died. But then... He came back to life. And as people are putting together these, these pieces at the time of Christ, there were two men walking down a road to Emmaus. And Christ, in his resurrected body, came up behind them. And he heard them talking about everything that had happened. And this is what it says in Luke 24, 25 through 27. Christ says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, this morning we're going to look at resurrection in the Old Testament. We're going to start there, and I like to approach it this way. I want to look first at this promise of resurrection that we see in the Old Testament. And then we'll see the proof of resurrection. We see it in, in Christ himself as he was raised from the dead. The proof of resurrection in the New Testament. And finally, we'll talk about preparation for resurrection. How do we live now in preparation for the resurrection? So, we now come to the text. And I want to first look at this promise of resurrection in the Old Testament. And what you see in the Old Testament uh, is the notion of resurrection slowly Unfolding. Frankly, the Israelites, the Jews, those people whom God had chosen, knew very little of what happened when someone died. They actually thought you went to a place called Sheol. And it was a place that you just sort of go to and you kind of kick around in the dust for a while. 
It was when you departed this life, you went into this kind of hopeless existence, apart from the presence of God, apart from everyone you knew, to this shadowy place, a place of hopelessness called Sheol. And when they died and they went there, they were cut off from fellowship with God. So the Israelites lived with little hope for a period of time without resurrection. But then we see hints of it coming along. Uh, the idea of being raised from death out of Sheol started looking better. And then some verses in the Old Testament start hinting at something to come. As a matter of fact, if you look in Job chapter 4, he started asking the question, uh, will man live again? And then we get to the prophet Daniel that I'd already mentioned in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It says, and many of those who sleep in the dust, uh, that was a way of saying that someone had died and looked like they were asleep, asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then again, another prophet, and the, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 26, verse 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So now not only are you getting a sense of resurrection, but a sense of something that's going to come along that's going to be much, much better than the existence that you had previously. This resurrection is going to provide something to hope in, something to be joyful about, that you're going to awake, that you're going to sing for joy. And now we're getting a fuller picture of what resurrection is going to look like to this Old Testament audience. Hope would be growing in their hearts about what the future held. And then as we look back to the promises that God had made very little on, we learned that resurrection was actually going to be a requirement for God to fulfill those promises he made. And we go back to the book of Genesis. Uh, God was speaking to a man named Abram. He'd become known as Abraham. And he made promises to Abraham. And he and Abram are looking over this land. And he says to him there in that moment, in Genesis 13, 15, For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. So the promise is made, however, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not going to live to see the fulfillment of this promise that was made. This is actually addressed again in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, speaking of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. God is going to use resurrection and the promise of resurrection to fulfill the promises that he'd made to his people very, very early on. Now, this is hard for us uh, because people don't often keep their promises. We don't see this happen that often. But a promise, if you think about it, is, it's a very profound thing because you are making an assertion that in the future, this, regardless of circumstances, Regardless of uncertainty, regardless of what may happen anywhere at any time, even in your own life, that this is going to be true. Now, I don't typically think about that when I make a promise. 
And oftentimes, either by forgetfulness or for some other reasons, I don't fulfill those promises I make. And I love what this one writer says. His name is Lewis Smeads. He wrote an article about promises. And he said this. When a person makes a promise, she reaches out into an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable. She will be there even when being there costs her more than she wants to pay. When a person makes a promise, he stretches himself out into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing. He will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. If it is one thing that I have learned in this current COVID-19 world we live in, that we are living in a, in a sea of uncertainty. We control so little. As a matter of fact, I sometimes think the only thing we can really control is our attitude to the circumstances that we, we find ourselves in. God's promises to his people create certainty. I would argue the only certainty we can have in the sea of uncertainty that we currently find ourselves in. So we see this resurrection promise in the Old Testament. But then we see the proof of resurrection in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, we see it uh, in the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. The passage I read a few moments ago details exactly what happened. Christ had died on Friday, but then when the, when the women come to find his body... There in the tomb, they are met with shock and surprise. They actually, their faces fall to the ground. There's an angel there that meets them and says to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Jesus provided the proof of the resurrection, what God had promised way back in the Old Testament. So the promise was proven in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ is no longer anywhere physically in the world today is the proof that he was resurrected and then ascended now into the presence of the Father. So Jesus is proof of the resurrection. And Christ's resurrection is not the only thing that was proven. Christ's resurrection also proved that our sins were totally and completely paid for by the work that Christ did. See, the wages of sin is death. So the fact that Jesus came out of death meant that the, the sins were completely atoned for. And I love the way Tim Keller puts this. He's got this great illustration of this, this truth. And he says this, If someone goes into jail because the law says that 10 years in jail is the punishment for the crime. The day that man comes out of jail, he has paid for the crime. That law doesn't have a claim on him anymore. He's a free man. The wages of sin is death. And when Christ went down into death, he paid for our debt. When he came up out of the grave, that meant it was paid. Christ's resurrection proves that it was fully paid. So the debt was paid in full for our salvation. This is why the sins no longer hang on us. 
This is why Jesus took the punishment so that we would never have to. And that brings me to this, this next question. How then do I prepare for resurrection? How do I live in a way that prepares me for resurrection? And I want to make three suggestions in light of this. First of all, and this is crucial, please, please hear me, number one, make your relationship with Christ certain. Make your relationship with Christ certain. How much faith does it take to be saved? I used to work at a seminary, and uh, that's just, if you don't know, that's where pastors go to get trained up. And I, I, you get some of the weirdest calls when you work at a seminary. People will just kind of call with, with random questions. I'll never forget this one lady that called, and she called, she said, I want to know whether or not I'm a Christian. She said, I want to know if I'm going to heaven. So I started asking her some questions. And I said, well, do you believe that, that Jesus Christ is God? And, and she said, yes. I thought, well, that's a, that's a good start. I said, do you understand you're a sinner? She said, yes. I said, do you understand that Jesus died to pay for your sins? She said, yes. I said, do you believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave? She said, yes. I said, well, it it sounds like you're a Christian to me. But then she had this follow-up question. She said, but how much do I have to believe those things? And you know, Jesus made that answer very clear. And I said, you know what? Whatever the teeniest, tiniest amount of faith is, that is all it takes for you to be saved. They called it the faith of a mustard seed. Christ said with the faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. And it was the tiniest seed. That is the amount of faith it takes to be saved. So let me put the question to you right now. If you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, what is keeping you from it? Right there in your homes, and this may be a very crucial moment for you right now. Today you've been given the truth from the scriptures of what it takes to be saved. No matter what sins you may have committed, no matter what you've done up to this point, Christ, Christ's death covered them all. And I want to make an invitation to you right now to put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you have never done that, if you have any doubts, right now could be the moment where you can make that future certain. And you can say this prayer just right there in your homes, wherever you may be. If you're ready to take that step and, and trust in Christ, simply pray to him a, a prayer like this. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's, it's the trust and the faith in Christ that saves you. Lord Jesus, I understand that I'm a sinner. And I believe that you are fully God and you died on the cross to save me from my sins. I believe that you rose from the grave. And right now, I am trusting in the work that you did on my behalf to save me from my sins. It's in your holy and precious name I pray. Amen. It is trust in Jesus Christ's saving work. It's believing in what he did for us. That is what saves you. And if you prayed that prayer today, and you meant it, then I pray that you would let someone know. By the way, we have an assurance when we've trusted Christ that we are saved. There's a wonderful verse in John chapter 5, verse 24. 
And there John says, I tell you the solemn truth. The one who hears my message and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. So please make that relationship with Jesus Christ certain. And I hope you pray that prayer today. And then secondly, to follow up with that, live a holy life. Live a holy life. Live a godly life. Uh, There's a way of life that suits a Christian. When we become Christians, a lot of things happen. You become a new person when you trust Jesus as your Savior. And then you start to live in a different way. You start to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then you cooperate with the Holy Spirit. You find new ways to get your needs and desires met that you didn't before. As a matter of fact, only Christ can satisfy your desires in the deepest way as you live in devotion to Him. Now, living in devotion to Him and living a godly, holy life, it doesn't make Him love you more. We do this in response to what He has done for us. And this is truly how we get our desires met. There's a, there was a Major League Baseball player named Al Pugels. He was uh, from the Dominican Republic, uh, played first base for the St. Louis Cardinals. And he was a, a strong believer, and he had a real sense of this sentiment. And he was speaking to a group of high school students, and he said, As a Christian, I'm called to live a holy life. My standard for living is set by God, not by the world. I am responsible for growing and sharing the gospel. And then he goes and he reads to them uh, Philippians 2.3. It says in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And then he said this to those students. One way for me to stay satisfied in Jesus is for me to stay humble. Humility is getting on your knees and staying in God's will what he wants from me, not what the world wants. He added, it would be easy to go out and do whatever I want, but those things only satisfy the flesh for a moment. Jesus satisfies my soul forever. If you are looking for true satisfaction, it comes as we live in devotion to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you may say to me, look, Chad, um, I've been at this Christianity thing for a long time. I've done my turn in the children's department. I've done my turn in the praise man. I've done my turn uh, planting trees out uh, by the church. I've done that. I want to offer you a word of encouragement. You've walked with God for a long, long time. There was was a man named Ted Gregory. He wrote an article about serving God over time uh, that, that I love so much. He himself was an older man in his 80s but still had a passion to serve God. And he says this, he said, we're often tempted in the church to slow down, to cut back, to take it easy because we get tired of taking risks. And in Christ's work, there are a lot of emotional or spiritual risks. Life itself is a risk. We're all going to die. So we might as well get involved, take the risks, and do the things in Christ we really love. And by the way, I want to add something here. As I talk about the hope and the life to come, as I talk about all the wonderful things 
uh, that happen when we, when we die and we're present with the Lord, I pray that you will never get in, give in to the temptation that your life is yours to take. It is not. That belongs to the Lord. So please don't ever give in to that temptation. And then finally, finally we can face the end with confidence. We can face the end with confidence. Because of the resurrection, we can face the end with confidence because we can be confident in what the end game is going to be. And then we can live with this strong hope and expectation of what's to come. I've been blessed on occasions to be with people when they were in the last moments of their life. And I'll never forget on multiple occasions people having these ear-to-ear -ear grins uh, as they were going into hospice, as they were going through the dying process. And I believe it's because they had this strong sense and belief in what was to come. I love what it says in 1 Corinthians 2.9. Things that no eye has seen or ear heard or mind imagined are the things God has prepared for those who love him. There was a wonderful sermon uh, that Jonathan Edwards had preached, and he outlined some reasons why heaven is going to be way better than it is right now. I don't know how we ever got in our heads that heaven in any way was going to be boring. It is not. It'll be way better than our existence right now. And he says a few things. First, Jonathan Edwards says uh, that you will have a greater capacity for joy. See, after we're resurrected, we're going to have a different body, and we'll be able to enjoy things fully. We're not enjoying things as well as we can uh, in this life as we will whenever we're died and we're resurrected, and we enter that new world. We'll have a much greater capacity for joy. We'll have a a perfect body will be stronger and smarter and, and able to enjoy Christ in new ways. And this is what he says about it. He says, our earthly soul had only a little spark of divine love in it. And heaven shall be, as it were, turned into a bright and ardent flame, like the sun in its fullest brightness when it has no spot upon it. We will be able to enjoy things more than we do now including food, including food. And I've got a great enjoyment of food. Remember, there's going to be a giant feast in heaven. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. A second point that Edwards makes, and, and this is really, really cool, that you will have an ever-increasing capacity for joy. So when you think you've hit your joy limits, you haven't. Because it's like your joy bucket's just going to keep getting bigger. He says, enraptured with joys that are forever increasing, yet forever full. This is why heaven is never going to be boring. And we can approach that moment with a full confidence of what's going to happen in the life to come. When we, when we pass away, we're instantly in the presence of God. And someday, and this is where our real hope lies, we will be resurrected like Christ with a brand new, perfect, smarter, stronger body. This is our daily hope. This is something that the world cannot offer. Then to put this all together, resurrection hope carries us 
through today's hardship. Resurrection hope carries us through today's hardship. I actually want to close today with this. It's a wonderful story from a man who was a, a resurrection scholar, a guy by the name of Gary Habermas. Uh, he'd written lots and lots of books on Christ and the resurrection and proof of the resurrection. But his life was rocked when he and his wife, Debbie, went to the doctor's office for what they thought was the flu. And they came to find out that his wife, Debbie, uh, had stomach cancer. And he says this in that moment. He said, my heart sank. He said, I had to sit down. Little did I know that my belief in Jesus' resurrection was about to be severely tested. And feeling the sting of grief and pain, Debbie was diagnosed with stomach cancer four months later at the age of 43. She passed away just after we celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary. And he says, I lost my best friend. He said during that time, he took refuge in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It had been his, his research area for 25 years. And he had a, a student that approached him and he asked, what would you do now if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead? He said, I knew the historical side, I knew the theoretical side, but he said, I was never fully aware of the practical power of Christ's resurrection until this moment. And he says this, how did all this help me while Debbie was dying? He said, I imagined what God might say to me in my response, in response to my questions about Debbie. And God would say this, he would ask me, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? Of course you did, Lord. I would respond, but why is Debbie dying? Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? The question would come again. Yes, Lord, but, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? And he said question after question. He said, he said this, I thought I had a slide, I don't. He said, I imagine God repeating the same question until I got his point. There was an answer to Debbie's suffering, even if I didn't know it. If Jesus has been raised, and I can trust that Debbie will be raised someday too. He said it was sufficient. It was sufficient to know that. And you know what? That is sufficient for you and I. No matter what you're suffering through right now, when we've trusted Christ as our Savior, you can be confident that if he raised his son from the dead, so will he raise you and I. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, we know and trust that you are a God who resurrects. That is the hope that we cling to. Lord, life itself on this earth is troubled. It's painful. We don't at any point know what the future holds, but for the truth that someday we will be with you for all eternity. We thank you for the Easter hope that we have. It's in the holy and precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <laughs>